On today's episode, we have a wealth planning specialist who helps people not only plan for the future, but achieve those goals. Let's start the week with Hector Sanchez. Let's get right into it. Um, Hector, welcome to the show. Hey, Roddy. Nice. Thanks for having me, man. Of course. No, I appreciate you taking the time to connect with us. You have a very busy schedule. And, you know, right now, at least during COVID times, we're fortunate enough to be remote. So um, using this opportunity to make sure we connect. So thank you. Yeah. So let's dive right into it. Uh, let's tell the world what it is you do for a living. Sure. Um, so I work for Morgan Stanley. And at Morgan Stanley, I'm a, I'm a wealth planning specialist at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management division. I create financial plans and reports and as well risk analysis for our clients, as well I also assist in the portfolio construction and basically um, de- developing, working with them and kind of seeing how the way we should allocate as well. And, and, and in that process as well, when I partner with our bank team to give our clients bank solutions when the clients require anything like a credit line or a mortgage. So I leverage and I liaise with them and kind of I'm the person that deals with the client and I deal with the bank and kind of monitor both of those sides. Um, that's a pretty much in a, in a gun hole, what kind of, kind of what I do now. Right. And so is that, so your clients are regular humans, like human beings with, uh, you know, large or a good amount of wealth, uh, accumulated that are looking to allocate their funds in different ways. Uh, Correct. Yeah. So, so private wealth management is an ultra high net worth boutique, basically, uh, uh uh, for area of the firm, um, wealth management as a whole, it's encompasses the firm, <clears throat> and basically our client base would typically range from five million to one hundred, two hundred million, three hundred million, and above. Um, and, and essentially, what what you end up doing there is you end up taking into family relationships, family offices. We have some endowments, we have some kind of relationships like that, but basically, we've known the clients for for past 10 years, 12 years, not per se myself, but my advisor has existing that relationship for years and he's leveraged that continues that. And as the business and their they individually keep growing, we keep growing with them and kind of containing their, their business. Great. Okay. That's fascinating. Uh, tell me quickly, is this uh, what you always wanted to do for a living? No, actually, you know, <laughs> believe it or not, I'm from Dykeman. Um, I w- I'm Dominican. I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you at one point in my life as a 12, 13 year old, I was telling you I wanted to play professional baseball. Yeah. Um, Same here. Uh, <laughs> so one of the things though, um, it all changed for me when I was entering high school and my mother decided to change all my high schools because of course all the schools that I picked were not necessarily the great academically or maybe at the time of my mom thought is the safest. Um, but they were great in baseball. So, and that didn't coincide for her what she thought was safe. So basically I ended up in a small school in, called Coalition for Social Change. It's located okay. in Columbus Circle in 59th Street. That was interesting, right? That at that point, I thought everything, my early adolescent life, uh, everything changed, right? And now I'm like, I need to rethink what am I going to do? Because of course, Coalition didn't have a baseball team. <laughs> so that was like a shocker, right? And but it had a basketball team and a bowling team. Yes, get excited, bowling team. I mean, you could you could use the arm strength if you if you know <laughs> in some capacity, but it's not exactly the same. Exactly. So um, it was it was interesting enough. Um, so I decided to stay. I got like really acquainted with a with a lot of the teachers and the the students. Actually, the seniors. Well, a lot of the seniors in the in the school were from Dykeman, so they took me in. I joined the bowling team actually. And I got actually talking all that talk to, just to join the team. <laughs> exactly. And it was kind of cool, and whatever the case may be. And, and at that point, I realized that, you know, why would I do waste a year and go to another school and try to change for something that is not guaranteed? So I pretty much decided I, I just I would give it a try. And it worked out, you know. Um, at that point, I, I had great, some great friends. I, I met some great friends, awesome teachers. And and the school was, was the place, I think, for me, right? I think at that point, is the attention that I needed. It's the kind of academically, the drive and the push that I was going to get. From that point, I landed into Binghamton, right? And Binghamton University had a decision where, of course, Binghamton would drew me to Binghamton was that they had a bowling alley in, in the one of the 
<laughs> no, I, I was deciding between yeah. between Stony Brook and Binghamton, and I went with Binghamton because of the bowling alley. No, so bowling alley is going to come back no matter what. Well, funny thing is there is that I ended up there, and basically I wanted to be a computer engineer. I remember as a kid that I worked with computers with my dad. I built my first computer and was convinced like that's something that I like to do. I liked working with my hands and kind of wanted to go back into that. So I got it. What age was that? Well, at what age so were you that, like building computers and doing all this? So my first computer, we built it together around nine, ten. Back in the day, I think it was a. Uh, uh, I think um, it actually got bought out by AT and T, not too, but Packer Bell. Um, it was uh, basically Definitely. the the brand of the computer, and it was it was a great experience. You know, I was got to really see the inside of the computer, and from there, I had a couple of summer youth jobs that allowed me to continue that. You know, at age fourteen, I joined. Uh, some of you was lucky enough to work for Columbia Presbyterian, fixing some of their computers and working with as a tech there as well. So it was a cool experience. And, and it was like computers became easier for me. You know, I understood them. It was easy. So when I got into Binghamton, I was excited. You know, I, I got accepted into School of Watson, which is their school of engineering. And um, my summer program, I started taking like intro classes. And from those intros classes, it just didn't seem that, that I was going to do anything hands on. Um, and I was like inquiring. And, and then from there, I was like, you know, what is, how does, what does the curriculum look like? And basically they told me, you don't really get hands on until your junior year. Right now, all you're going to take is a math to like your blue in the face, science and like from all levels. So I was like a little deterred. Of that. I was like, maybe this is something. So I started inquiring and I got into computer science. Maybe I pivoted over a little bit and I was like, you know, maybe computer science more hands-on um and I, I would enjoy that and then i was pretty much that was the first time in my uh, school education wise that i was really challenged i've never been so so challenged in my life because i was struggling i was getting c pluses coding was a completely different language i mean some of the kids that were there were doing it since in high school i was just started picking this up like i was trying to learn spanish for my first time and and the, and the thought process here was that you would to get more hands-on earlier in in your college career versus being in a path where you wouldn't actually be building a computer until later on you're like well coding i can just start doing this now and at exactly. least learn if i like it and and at least hone in my skills earlier in the process is that was that really the thought process there exactly 100 percent. and as well the, the way they framed it there was a program that kind of got me excited was basically they framed it as that is that you can partner if you do computer science you can partner with a school of management and basically you can have like kind of double major with a, a business background in computer science so i thought ideally with my personality that was going to be a great fit maybe i can fall into a more project management kind of role and, and that's what i was thinking in my head at that time again i'm a just maybe what 18 years old at the time like i'm trying to make these life changing decisions on the fly and basically I went in there and, and I, I, I stick by, you know, I was by my sophomore year. I was, I was still taking computer science. I was still going through it, trying to, I would do tutoring as much as I can and kind of just get eventually there. But one thing that kind of deterred me was I went for like my first career day and I went to like speak to Microsoft and everything. And I basically see like, could you tell me what's your nine to five? Like, how does your day? And the person basically told me, well, we basically go to a cubicle and code. And I was like, you know, do you get to interact with the teams and everything? And he basically didn't commute. Like, he told me, no, not necessarily. There's other roles that you can do that you can look into. And that kind of was like, I don't know if that's going to be my fit. Um, and that's when they introduced, my advisor introduced me to the program of computer science and the school of management. And I, you know, I started going, in order for me to do that, I needed to take some economics course to get accepted to the School of Management. And from there, it became clear to me after a while that I was more interested in economics than I was more in, in computer science. So at that point, I decided to just stick with economics and kind of give it a try. And then uh, from there, I graduated with uh, Binghamton with an economics degree and a minor in Latin American Caribbean studies, go figure. Why, why First, uh, why that minor? And second, so at this point now, you're, you've switched majors twice and ended up taking some courses because you thought it would be a good dual degree and then recognize, actually, I just like this one more than the one that brought me here. So you just pivoted completely there. 
Yeah, hundred percent. And I think at that point as well to mention, I, I, I when I first applied for the school of management, uh, I didn't get accepted and kind of was like bummed out. And I was like, you know, I, I came to the decision: do I keep chasing this target if I'm really passionate about it, or do I just pivot and go from here and see what I can do to just be able to graduate on time and kind of see what I had to do at the same time? You know, on the in school, I'm working as by like three or five jobs and trying to figure it out, everything out, and then kind of. You know, I didn't really want to stay in school in five to six years and then kind of for something that wasn't driving me. So and I ended up taking some really interesting classes and really great courses and, and it was fun. So I think that's what drove me there. What did you like about economics? Like what about it really intrigued you that you felt like, OK, this makes more sense to me? One of the first classes was like micro macro, right? Um, Macroeconomics and macroeconomics. And it's when people like kind of normally see it's like oh like i don't like understand it but what i liked is was the overall how do you can those pieces connect to what you in this world like how that affects our decisions today how does that play out and then it's interesting enough that's a lot of correlated to what i do now at work something that basically i have to take into consideration where the interest rates are going to be i have to take a consideration what rather globally how the world is going to be to see how what is going to go up and what is not going to go what is going to go down and to me, one of the, after that, after that, just that simple introduction was like, okay, this is pretty cool. Like it's, it's something that I'm not familiar with. It's something that basically is, it's really correlated to the world. It's like, you know, I'm, a lot of people tell you like what I'm going to use the Pythagorean theorem in math in real life, like in micro macro, it's, co- it's related. You're going to like learn information that you can use later on. And then I think one of the, just pushed me over to the top was when I took like an economics uh, sports class. And that became basically we read the book Moneyball, and from there mm-hmm. it was again like more using uh, numbers and like statistics and basically to adjust to come into a conclusion about certain things. And that just overall kind of intrigued me. So at that point, I, I was just sold and kind of enjoyed it. I wasn't clear that that I was going to be a wealth planning specialist at that point. I had no idea that I wanted to work in Wall Street at that point, but I was enjoying what I was learning at that point. Were, were your parents part of the like thought process and decision making around kind of where your career, your major was going? Um, and I asked because I know like for me, like my mom visited my school when I graduated, right? Like, <laughs> like she went, she, she went to my college like twice, right? And it was, I mean, no fault of hers, but it, she didn't have an education in the state. So she also couldn't guide me through FAFSA. She couldn't guide me through these things. I had like, you know, she just, she wasn't able to like capable of doing that right so i was able to find resources outside to to kind of get through that wondering if you um either had some of that um that guidance that you were able to have a conversation with either your parents or other people um that you were able to develop relationships to help you kind of think through this right because like you said being 18 and trying to determine the rest of your life is pretty big right so like were there there influences in your life that, that you were using as a soundboard at that time yeah. Uh, so my mom, I mean, we had a great relationship, but my mom worked as a home attendant and she worked 12, 13 hour shifts basically and still had time to like come home and do everything. But at a very early age, I made like basically I told my mom, like at eight years old, the deal where I was like, listen, I worry about school and you worry about everything else. I'll make sure I, 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 won't, I won't disappoint you. And I took that vision. I don't know why, to be honest. Um, maybe some people say, my brother's 11 years older. I, I saw from his his uh, experiences that college was was my experience also. Or you can say from my, I took the environment where I grew up, I knew school had to be a place where I could go, that I needed to get a better life and at that early age. And that's pretty much the stance I had. You know, I told my mom, I'm going to do that. So the same thing applied in college, right? And I think I was fortunate enough being part of the EOP program where I had advisors and, and kind of I leveraged that and spoke to most of them. I, they didn't just take the person that was nominated. I just, I, if I had a good relationship with you, I would ask you and then go here and then just pretty much email teachers and kind of take that advantage. Um, I can, I was, um, I didn't, I was never afraid to ask the question. Um, and that's, and I thought always going, entering into college, I was a calculator person and I knew exactly my next steps, but I was realizing that I didn't ask for help, you know, and, uh, and a lot of the times they will walk me through it. They kind of explain to me and, and it, at that time, it made sense, um, and, and and it worked out. So, 
that makes sense, right? It's a, you know, having the awareness that you don't know everything, you don't have the answers, <laughs> but you can piece people's experiences and information together to kind of fit you along your path. Uh, for those that don't know, what is EOP? It's the Equal Opportunity Program. And it's basically a program that they allow um, students that come from families with not well off, basically, and they're, they're not necessarily can afford a full tuition into a, one of these schools like Binghamton or any other SUNYs. And basically, they require a certain grade threshold as well, SAT requirements to meet, and then you basically qualify for the program. And what's great about the program is kind of it allows for a summer program for one month before you get into your regular semester and kind of brings in all the students that got admitted as EOP students. And you kind of create a bond, right? And you kind of really create friends and lifelong relationships at that early stage, which as again, as an 18 year old, and you're like, you're going three hours away from New York City, which my that's the first time leaving New York City was amazing, right? I um, mean, and I think especially when you feel alone and you, you're like your parents are three hours none of them drive um so it's not like they could come visit you and so it was it was a good experience in that extent and, and kind of um working with those people so got it that's great and i mean i, I was part of our school's version of that H-E-O-B, uh but mm-hmm. it's it's the same concept right and uh, i think i i truly enjoyed exactly what you said right like you're able to be in a room full of people that mostly look like you that are from similar at least financial situations um and you can kind of start leaning on each other early on and and build on those relationships to make sure that you all make it through this journey and you know build your support system very early which was super helpful some people were from you know completely different parts of not from the city maybe from upstate new york or from other places but ultimately the the similarity and the threads were there and we were able to build some really good relationships so I'm glad you explained that because I know, um, you know, there are folks out there that don't know what this is, right? So, um, but it's, it's played a pivotal role in me getting through school and in me being able to go away to school. Okay. So, yeah, from there, I mean, basically, so at that point, I graduated Binghamton. And again, I spent Binghamton more, you know, trying to figure things out. But at the same time, I think I had at that point in Binghamton three jobs. I did one. I realized I needed an internship maybe later too, than I, I should have gotten it to. Um, and again, it's thinking, you know, everything, but not really knowing everything and kind of didn't take it full advantage. So at that point, when I graduated, I was kind of scrambling to feel like what I'm going to do, uh, what I'm going to find a job. And uh, at that point, I ended up I started a job briefly in, in State Farm. And that was because my internship was in State Farm in, in Binghamton as well. I had friends that kind of connected me with the person and, and it was a cool experience. But it wasn't just for it wasn't for me, right? And I, I think at that point I was extended a hand and landed a hand to join a temp job at Morgan Stanley and purchase New York, and it was to work in the operation teams. And from there, it was like, oh, oh wow! Like finally, I, I get an opportunity to work at Morgan Stanley. This is amazing, and it was a cool experience. And I arrived, and I mean, pretty much realized early on it was it was a place where I needed to be. But it wasn't my end goal. Um, I really quickly realized it wasn't what I wanted to do. But the people were there, and I learned some great life lessons. And till this day, I I speak to one of the ladies that I, that kind of took me in, and it was an amazing like story. Like she was an amazing woman that kind of resonated with me. She traveled from Brooklyn, New York, on public transportation to get to purchase, and was in the office at six a.m. And she was near 62 years, uh, 62 years old when I met her. So, wow. you know, uh, that was like something wide, uh, a rude awakening. Right? And so it's like, you would think it's different. And it was from there, I think at that point, that was one of those things that, you know, you learn and kind of develop. And at that point, I just took the firm and I kind of try to see where do I fit? Started asking questions and I just started trying to figure it out and trying to excel in my role at the same time, try to get uh, to see what my next steps are. And I ended up beginning, uh, within the year, I think, uh, later on, I got given the opportunity to, to join the team, but we were, I was told that I was, um, we were going to offshore our team to Mexico. So I became an associate in the team and basically had to train a staff in Mexico, how to do the job and how to kind of process things and doing and different things. So it mean, we came from just starting a job, trying to figure it out and real quickly kind of a manager role, um, which was very interesting experience at like 22 years old. 
So what what were your job functions at that time? Like what were you responsible for? So so just to backtrack a little bit. So the the, the team what they do is basically the, uh, every security that trades in the market basically needs to be set up in a system and and add their prices manually and everything like kind of that. Um, so um, one of those things that we did in that side we worked in the fixed income side. So we would we set up bonds and kind of and, and, and that information and we will set it up. And it was kind of a demanding job because the traders will need certain securities in the system before they can trade it. At that point, when I became the associate, my job was to create procedural guides and really kind of develop the team in Mexico to pick up the slack. Right. Because at that point, it just it was just left off that it was me and my boss. The rest of the team was kind of dismantled. And so we wanted to make sure that it was it was going to work right once we go live and i had an invested interest because my goal was to leave the team so the more i taught the team some money in mexico the easier it would have been for me to step away and that was my goal and i think what i did there and i took that motivation i pretty much took one uh, person in, in the mexico office kind of taught them everything and i actually was able to go to guadalajara mexico and i stayed there for two weeks and kind of trained the team I really taught them everything I knew and kind of gave them the step-by-step process and took a different standpoint than a normal offshore model does. Like a lot of you, t- like when offshores, they, they have the same kind of models and they basically request that you kind of follow this log to the T and it's basically step-by-step. And I was like, no, I created that log. I'm here. Like this is, this is not a hard job. Let's use our, like, let's work it through. And that's how it's going to make you be able to like handle this job. And Teaching that, luckily, um, that worked out, right? And uh, just not too long ago, one of the guys that I actually ended up like basically teaching him everything that I knew messaged me. He said, you know, I just got a job with another company at a higher role. And it was literally because everything you taught me, I was able to leverage and be a manager there. I was like, wow. He was 18 years old when I taught him that time. And now he's uh, 20-something years old with a family and two kids. So like that was one of the most touching experiences for me. That's awesome to see, um, one, that you were actually pretty good at what you did, right? Because it resonated with people. Um, but two, that, that it really had an impact on, on someone's life, right? Like someone is now able to excel in their careers based on the work that you did with them years back. That must be really rewarding. Yeah, it felt great, man. So, yeah. And then from there, I had an opportunity with an email from somebody I worked in the purchase office that was he was doing a different role in my office now. He said, hey, are you looking for a job? Um, I was like, yeah, I'm kind of looking around saying, hey, you should look at private wealth management. I know an advisor that's looking. This and, is all within the same company. Correct. And basically, he reached out to me just because from our experiences working together, he thought he was like, you'll be great. You're like, you were great at what you did now. I think you would be even better here. Um, and I think it's a good role for you. You know, like when you say like, Things are going to happen for you when you're like being positive, kind of trying to figure things out. I think that that was like my my shining key that that like I was being handed to. Um, and, and I ended up going for a couple of interviews and ended up joining the team that I joined now. And at that point, I joined more of a, a service professional or basically an, an analyst. Basically there, that job was more relationship management. I worked more with the clients and servicing their accounts and helping them with more of like operational requests. And from there again, um, I saw that, you know, I joined the team knowing that what I was intrigued about was the people that worked there. They were really intelligent individuals. It's probably one of the most intelligent individuals that I've met at my, at my point in time of my career. And I was, I, I knew that these are the people that could be my mentors. And and kind of teach me in, in, along the process. How long, how long ago did you end up joining this team here? Yeah, I joined in 2014. So now it's going to be six years, in October 2014. And prior to that, you were with the company, just at a different... Exactly. I joined Morgan Stanley completely in July 2011. And then from there, I was working in uh, the back office operations team. And now this role became more of like a front office operation. I mean, front office opportunity. Yeah, which is great, right? Because I feel like that's one of the benefits of being in such a large organization that you can pretty much do completely different career paths all within one organization, right? Like you can you can change teams and have completely different functions, uh, well, all under the same organization. Hundred percent, and I think one lesson that I learned from that, and I think it was because my drive and kind of my hunger, kind of to figure it out. 
was that purchase office. I met one of the best mentors that today are people that are kind of fighting for my corner and reaching out for me and helping me out. Right. Um, I met a mentor that when I re- went for a meeting, I told him I was interested in the sales job. He kind of like told me straight up and he's like, this is what you need to do. Kind of this, is what you need to be, this is how you, and it was a rude awakening, but at the same time, it was like what I needed. Right. I just joined a firm and I'm not going to get the opportunity that I want just handed to me. I had to do the things that other people were doing. And I think that helped me a lot, you know, and he, that mentor himself opened a lot of doors. I was in a lot of interviews before this interview and it gave me a lot of experience and kind of gave me the framework and he kind of challenged me to think of the questions I needed to know for these interviews. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that's why one of the things that I've, I've stated more is that it's just some of the people there are just amazing individuals and they are willing to help you and bring you along. And I, and I think it worked out um, now to the goal that I ended up doing is within that team, I realized that I wanted to do what I'm doing now, basically managing, working, managing being a portfolio manager, uh, um, portfolio to a certain extent and kind of helping with financial plans. So I took the extra step at one point, uh, like I believe year two of uh, that, um, being on the team, I realized I need to decide either MBA or CFA. And what is a CFA and what is an MBA? So MBA is a master's of business administration. And basically it's, most people in the pay in a kind of a, that's a financial role that wants to take the next step will go for that in an opportunity. CFA is a charter financial analyst. For me, the decision played on two of those things were basically one was because those were the next milestones I needed to take a step, next step. I felt like I needed one of them to be taken more seriously, to be taken more like. Um, the person that I just want, I can't just come in from a back office operation experience and demand to manage portfolios for multi-millionaires. Um, I needed to kind of, you know, get a seat on the table. So I, that's what kind of I d- developed the idea and a lot of things that weighed the options. But at the time I, I still, I had student loans and I was thinking about the whole premise, you know, how can I be comfortable to go to a top 10 MBA program and have a $200,000 tuition? Wow. Like how am I going to dig myself out of that hole? So I started looking for alternatives and that's why I became clear. And I started asking my colleague who's CFA himself. He had a CFA at the point and he explained to me his thought process. And I was like, oh, that makes total, total sense. And it looks like it worked out perfectly for you. So I pretty much, I embarked that journey and what was the top process at the time, aside from the tuition benefits or, or the tuition consideration? Yeah, and the tuition consideration. And then basically at that time, there was a lot of statistics that basically showed the role, what you learned from the CFA material kind of aligns you pretty similar to what MBA provides you. The only difference in the MBA is that a lot of the programs have more networking aspects to it. But if you're looking for a rigorous financial background and kind of an, an analysis, the program will give you that and you and as well it's self-learning right you do it on your own time and you kind of do it after work so you can mold, um, work as opposed to either trying to do mba part-time which will take you three years or go quit your job and then two years and take take that thing which is also a consideration right i mean for the real full benefits of an mba you need to go to the school you want to go to and really network as opposed to but i didn't really have that option because to stop working at that time was like not an option for me because at the same time when my when I graduated from college, my mom uh, had to retire from disability from moments and and then a year later my dad had to retire from disability. So at that point I was put in a seat that my income was pretty much the only income that was helping out. So there was a lot of factors in those decisions, but I think I ended up choosing the CFA more because one I thought it was uh, three exams and it was more attainable at the time and as well. And I think what I really wanted was just that exposure. I didn't think I, I knew kind of an idea where I wanted to go. So I, I didn't think the MBA was going to be the place where I needed it. was going to I was going to maximize my time. So at that point, that's where I kind of said, you know what, this is the place where I want to go. Great. So for those that are just now learning about the CFA, help me understand the process to obtain one. Is it you can do it in a week? and take three tests back to back to back? Or how long does it typically take to study? How long did it actually take you to study? How, what was the process like from beginning to end? Sure, so I'm still not, uh, unfortunately not done yet. I still have one exam and because coronavirus has ex- pushed my exam uh, two times, it's postponed my exam from June, 2020 to December and now to May, 2021. 
So that is the last level three exam. But just to overall, the CFA exam requires CFA level one, CFA level two, and CFA level three. And you need to pass one before you can take the other. And basically, the way they set up the, the framework of the exam, the level one is an introductory kind of foundational learning. And then the second one kind of is where you become an analyst and kind of use your analytical hat. And then level basic, three. And then analyst level learning of what exactly? Like what what is what are some of the concepts that you're learning? Like what are I know it's financial information, but like what what are some of the things you're actually learning and what are some of the skill sets you're you're gaining from it? Great. Um like yeah. So it basically frames it into all asset classes, you're learning how to analyze each asset class, whereas like stock concentration, how to how to see what, what the price earnings ratios are, how to calculate, looking through balance sheets, how to understand, teaching you all the things that you would need to do to become a good portfolio manager. So basically the level one will teach you the foundational, what is a fixed income, what is equity, kind of those kind of things, but and then expand a little bit more difficult than you will learn in, in the series exams that are we usually typically require when you work in a, in a branch study, like series seven, which is a general securities exam and series six, which is a securities laws exam. So it expands more of that. And the, basically the complexity of the exam requires 300 hours of study. And that's the minimum. And it's because it's a rigorous program. You're literally learning a lot of information within a, it's typically what you will try to learn in a four year or two year program with an MBA program, but you're learning it and like as quick as you can and pretty much your options. And I took, it had to take me 400 hours, at least minimum to kind of really get into the groove of things. And that's, I overshot the hours because I had to figure out a lot of things, you know, you had, but from at that point, almost seven years without reading, like, like going back into a school setting. And so I had to find the routine, right? I had to find something that works for me, something that I can adjust. And, and as I developed that, I kind of got into the habit. It, it worked for me and I kind of figured that out. And as well, the material, a lot of the material is intense. And so I had to kind of pace myself and kind of really see to really in, enjoy the information. And so that that experience from there, it took me to the to the level two exam. And then that my le- so basically I took the level two exam this just past year and I passed. And now I'm expecting to take the level three now in May 2021, which hopefully um, it's going to be, it's changed. It's a completely different new process. It's going to be a computer-based exam. So from the moment you picked up a book, because you're, you told me this is self-learning, right? So you're working towards an exam, but you are at home developing your own regimen and you can either come hang out with Ratty at night at a bar, or you can use your hours to really study. So you're home studying and for 400 hours. So what does that look like in terms of months? How, how much time are we talking in between the first and the second? So I underestimated the exam the first time and I decided to, uh, I think I believe I started studying in February, the first exam. And it was an exam in June. And from there, I wasn't prepared. So I didn't pass the exam at that point. So I had to retake it December of that year, the, the, that year. And at that point, it was almost an entire year while studying and just that rigorous kind of phase. And just interesting enough, like I felt at that point, a lot of my friendships and at least uh, people that I've had good relationships, but like I was, I went completely ghost, right? I mean, there was no way I, (laughs) so it was like, there was no way I can, can partake in every event and still keep the focus that it required me to do. And it's like, for me, it's either if I'm invested, I'm invested hundred percent. I can't give you 50% of Hector. Like, so I kind of took the approach that I had to separate myself and I kind of really just put myself in a, in a cave. And until I came out that cave and the goal that I wanted to accomplish is resolved, I could have, I could enjoy it. So I came needless to say, every time the exam it was in June, after the exam that June and July, August, I was celebrating, except for that year that didn't pass, because at that point I had to basically go back into studying, and it was a rough, rough summer. Because no, I can tell you right now, studying 300s in the summer month when it's sunny and your friends are out out there in bars, kind of enjoying themselves, it's like you can add another hundred hours in like labor. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so and that took me that, and then I saw in that I think it took me two years to get to level two, and now. um, I'm getting to level three, which I got delayed in, in a year just because of COVID, which I was hoping to be done. My age, my goal was 
to be done. When I started, I believe I started taking the exams. My goal was to do three years. And that's typically what they'd say if you, they say, but however, just to give you kind of a, a, an idea, I think this the latest numbers of like level one, 44% was the pass rate or level two was 47. Mm. And for level three, it was like 53%. So needless to say, not everyone gets it on their first tries. Yeah. Um, so they say typically it takes you three years. And, and basically my goal was to do that. So from 27 to 30, but now I'm 31. So I think my goal is going to look like closer to 31 and almost 32. Okay. So two, two final CFA questions. Uh, one, yeah. how, how much does this cost? And is it like paid per time you take it or something? And then two, how often are they given or can you just walk in if you fail this time? Can you just walk in next month and say, all right, I'm just going to lock in for this month and fill in the gaps? Like how often can you do this? So basically at that time, you can only take the level one twice a year. It was June or December. For level two and level three, there was only offered one time a year. It was June and June. That has changed now because of COVID. Now the CFA Institute basically has transformed and now they're doing computer tests, based tests. And which will now increase the amount of frequency of the test. But as well, they have their conditions. I believe, I think then uh, you can do it December and then you, or you can go right into it. You have to wait on a period and then take the next. And for each level, it kind of varies. But the cost, it, it goes, there's early registration. I believe, um, most of the times, I think when you pay for like level one, I think if you sign up in, in time, you will pay 600, 700. And then, you would have to buy the prep material as well. And you can pretty much go as conservative as you want if you can, but at the end of the day, you want to pass, so you're looking for whatever the best. So some of the discounts you get because of your employer, so you can leverage that. I mean, uh, you can I usually call up and just ask those kind of questions and try to see if somebody could give me even extra di- discounts um, and, and just to leverage that out. But so all in, I would say on average, maybe $2,000 per test. And, and that's like maybe the average. And I would say, I mean, some people may go on the lower end, um, but I would think if you get a third party uh, provider and kind of materials, then it would get you up, up there. And yeah, if you fail, basically you have to pay for the exam again. And, on, and unless you have, you meet certain criteria with the, the materials, they won't, they will make you pay full price again for the materials. Unless like for some of the, the prep providers, that's how you have you if you got through 50% of our materials, then we will give it to you for free or we will just d- reduce the price of what you're kind of doing. But in that case, you would just have to restart and kind of things. Luckily, one of the conditions that does help is my employer did would cover the exam once you pass, right? So, um, and the expenses that you you ha- um, would have taken. So I think a lot of the financials industries as well, you can pretty much leverage that as well. Um, it's a little different. Again, maybe to go back to the MBA comparison, I think our limit for tuition reimbursements was like $5,000 for per semester, as opposed to that is great for a CFA where it's only 2000 but for a school to go like a Columbia or Harvard, it's remotely not even possible to just take five thousand dollars like what's that going to do for you absolutely that makes sense okay so i appreciate that so now if we're looking towards the future in 2021 in may you take this exam you pass what does that mean for your career what does that mean for uh your next step and your next role Uh, not necessarily what you're already in the works in at morgan stanley but in theory what does that mean for somebody at your level um what could be the next step from that well, one, the role that I'm in now was granted part of it for the reason is because I'm already through that CFA journey. So I'm at to see where I need to be with that presence. And I think what it's going to do for me, not only for the education that I was able to develop and the experience, and it's given me the confidence to do what I'm doing now confidently, right? But as well, it also kind of rebrands me, right? I mean, it changes what my resume says from the back office operations to, okay, now this guy was basically a financial analyst. He's able to do the job and kind of, I guess this is the, now the restart of my career, right? Because I took a very back door into literally into Morgan Stanley by going through a, a temp agency and kind of working my way until I got to where I wanted to be and kind of a rebrand. And I think ultimately the career trajectory that I have now, I'm kind of at an advisor role. I'm kind of technically my role is like a consultant to the team. 
Um, it's I'm on the business side, right? So the next decision that I would need to make is if I want to become one, if I want to stick as that role, or do I, if I want to become an advisor myself? And, and that's something that I would have to make that decision on my own in the next two years, I guess, or, or the case may be, or and just to see if that's something that, that I want to do. Okay, so in terms of compensation, what does that mean being at your role versus being at an advisor? Like how... If I'm hearing Hector talk right now, I'm like, dang, I want to do exactly what Hector does. That sounds great. Um, can you give me a ballpark of what I should be expecting to make? And then if you then proceed to get your CFA or your MBA or whatever path um, to then go for the advisor role, like what what are the potential salary caps on something like that? And my role, I would say the, the ranges will be from like 150 to 350, like give or take. But I think it, it varies per business and per kind of experience because if you just google wealth planning specialist and you go to glassdoor they'll give you kind of a different range the only difference factor here is that i work in a kind of an entrepreneur setting yeah morgan stanley's a brand but ultimately i work for an advisor where he has his book of business and he basically he can share revenue and at that point as his business grows my conversation will grow as well and the same concept goes when you become an advisor now you're an advisor you're pretty much you're, you're running your book of business, right? And I mean, and in a lot of the days, the way the industry is shifting, it won't change much because uh, one of the things that I always consider about being an advisor is that I am 31 years old. Who is exactly that I'm going to go kind of prospect as as a client? I mean, you know, I, I mean, I can't go to the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world because they are my age, but they're multi-billionaires. I mean, why would they like kind of trust? And at the same time, there's what you would call older generational wealth that they're not going to trust a kid that's like 31 years old base compared to a guy that's been doing it for 20, 30 years. So the way the industry is diverging is that you have multiple advisors in one team managing kind of multiple relationships. And at that point, that range, I think a goal you can either make, depending what kind of uh, book uh, you're bringing in, but in how big, uh, how the size of the book, you can be, a, uh, you can make a million dollars, uh, 1.5, 1.2, Three point millions. I've seen some advisors that, you know, they make that kind of money and kind of, and that just means that they're generating uh, serious revenue, um, maybe $11 million a year um, and kind of good uh, assets. We would say like they manage 4 billion in assets just to give you an idea. And that's kind of the goal of like kind of what you're aiming for. Granted, uh, that's an elite level for, for like a lot, a lot of advisors. And there's a lot of smaller scale advisors that, you know, they manage more in the 1 billion or 200, 500 million kind of book of business. And there you go. You can thresh down, down from there and you can make you, maybe you make 500,000 or 250, 350. So, okay. So it sounds like in your team, there are folks that go out there and get clients, right? So the people that are out there saying, Hey, you should really, you know, consider investing your money with us um, and help us grow and manage your wealth. And then there are folks that from once they are in the door that would manage the relationship going forward. And then there are also folks that are actually actively investing that person's money, right? Is that mm -hmm. capture what some of the team looks like, or is there a lot more to it that I'm completely missing? No, you got it. You got the ballpark. I mean, I just I'm not trying to get too intricate with the details, but that's the sum of it, right? So the way it works, um, we have three advisors, and basically those three advisors have clients that they work with, right? And then we have like a very senior advisor, and he's basically been. One majority of the book, I mean, he's he, he has a great relationship for it. He has these clients for over 20 years. He's in the industry for over 25 years. And so they will, their, their focus, one, is maintaining those relationships. And one of the things I would add, what's different about private wealth management is you're dealing with uh, ultra high net worth clients, which brings more requirements than just managing their portfolios, right? Because these clients will nine out of 10 times, they will have multiple relationships with different advisors and different banks. But what they really leverage is like different opportunities. And they would like to invest, uh, work with a bank. Like if you can get me into private equity, could you get me into this meeting with like a Blackstone in the world? So, or like kind of things like that. And like leverage that connection of the brand of Morgan Stanley, or I would like to like kind of meet James Gorman. So 
a lot of the times it's there's those things that other advisors are doing and kind of leveraging the entire firm. That's what one of the privileges of working in a big multinational firm. And it's kind of leveraging those things to offer to these clients, because when it comes to these clients, it's just becomes that you can, you can pretty much invest their portfolios. And a lot of the times they're really sophisticated clients. They already know as well, a lot of things and they kind of agree. And, and our business predominantly is, is fully managed, which means that we manage their portfolios and kind of we really have a once a year or, or quarterly kind of conversations just to make sure they're review and kind of make sure everything's still the same. And at that point, we're managing the portfolio to a state of goal that we kind of have in our, like we discussed. And other than that, then comes into the extracurricular. Like my, my son wants to graduate this school. How would I get there? Would I'm thinking of, of buying this property in this place. Do you think it's a smart investment? Could you do some cost analysis? And that's, that's why the scope widens. And then once you're dealing with these kind of relationships, you can get really uh, interesting requests. And I think that's what a lot of the team does. And we kind of form that request and work together and try to establish. Then the rest of the team is like more of a support staff that pretty much makes makes everything, make sure everything gets done, right? I mean, without them, there's no kind of experience. And, and just one thing that I would add at this point, since my the, the lead advisor has been in the firms for so many years, and he's kind of established himself as an elite advisor, at this point, we work pretty much as a referral-based system. He's not really prospecting and calling clients. It's a lot of the times the clients know, like, listen, this is a great advisor. I think you should work with them, and they bring us clients. And and a lot of the times as well, the firm will itself will say that they will have good relationships, and they look for an advisor for a client. They will bring them to him and say, hey, look, there's an opportunity, and I think it's a perfect fit for you. And that's kind of a status that you get after you, I don't know what's the word, like you prove your your, your worth. And that takes time, right? And I think that's where it's it's harder for an individual that's younger to kind of get that kind of credit until it takes, and they they hit their peak of their career and kind of later on. Do you feel like you've made the right decisions in not being a, a full time coder in a cubicle and doing this instead? Uh, yeah, I think hundred percent. And not needless to say, I mean, if in the foresight to say, I mean, I would technology is changing the world, so I think it's a great career. It's great. I think it's it's an amazing world, but it wasn't just the, the what I loved, right? Um, I still, at one point, I would say the way everybody keeps talking about the robots are going to take over the world. I think sooner or later I'm going to have to know some type of coding, unless I'm going to I might be replaced in, in in the world. So, you know how they say if you don't if you don't if you're not active and you keep learning something new, then you become old news. Absolutely. Okay. Do you have any books or resources or? some form of media that has changed you personally or professionally that you think folks should be checking out? 100%. I, th- I have a few books that I've read that I really enjoyed. And then I have some podcasts that I enjoyed. So the books that I would recommend for and for those people that like want to get into the markets and kind of learn about value investing, is there's a book by Joel Greenblatt called How I Built how you beat the market. It's a very great little book. It's like maybe 100, 200 pages. It's a leisure read. It kind of gives you a really good foundation, like just understanding basics of, of the markets and just a little fun book to have. I would definitely recommend it to maybe a 14, 15, 16 year old to read something just to get them started curious. Like one of the thinking examples in the books is talking about how to make business as a gum, selling gum to school. And, and it's a great way to kind of picture what the stock market is in a very, not very kind of critical like direct way like textbook way and then the other ones that i've read and it's kind of shaped me in different forms and i've i don't know lately why but i've been enjoying kind of these these um like the shoe dogs with phil knight basically as well and um as well i read recently the bad blood story which is about theranos and fraud um as well there was one more book that was very intriguing and I would highly recommend if you want some color on how Russia worked back in the day, especially during the Obama administration. Um, it's called Red Notice and it's about from Bill Browder. And it's basically he's an investor and he basically starts his own private company and, and private investment firm in Russia. And he's not very well loved while he's there doing that. So it kind of goes and tells you the troubles that he goes through in that experience. And it kind of very rude awakening to see what they got away with. And it's basically based on a true story. So it's uh, one of the things that Obama gave a medal of honor to the Bill Browder's attorney called Sergei Tasker. Um, and I think it was in 2008. 
highly recommend that. And then highly, highly recommend uh, Shoot Dog and Bad Blood. I think those were great books to like kind of enjoy. And then podcast wise, I, I really love the how built this, basically how entrepreneurs kind of start up their business. And I will warn you, don't don't listen to it on a Monday because then you don't want to work. You're gonna just start trying to figure out a way how to <laughs> build your own company. You might not like want to do your job, but I would say it's definitely an awesome podcast to listen to. And I'm really enjoying as well um, about the bar um, about the markets is up um, as well. And it's called a podcast called Business Casual, and basically it's from the the, the folks that write the newsletter Morning Brew. And basically, they take all the high executives in the world, they kind of interview them. And basically, it's a nice little short podcast, maybe 40 minutes. And, and I think it's really powerful to like listen to, to different aspects. They go from into politics, they, they interview people from like uh, Mark Cuban and et cetera, like all the kind of interesting takes. And they kind of have a great conversation. And it's a very leisure way that you can enjoy maybe if you're even working out um, listening to. That's good. I haven't heard of that one actually, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and check that out. So thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Is there anything else the world should know about Hector? No, so my baseball career was a flop, so now I'm a softball player. So I mean, I... that's where the bowling helped. That <laughs> underhand. <laughs> but yeah, but other than that, I mean, nothing much. Um, just trying to take everything day by day, the same way as COVID as has starstruck everyone, and I mean, just trying to stay safe. You know. Actually, now that you mentioned COVID. Is there any any clarity that COVID has has brought to your life um, that you that you'd like to share? Any COVID clarity that has come out of this? Hundred percent. I think for me, what's a realization was what's really important, right? And I think I've for me, I've always tried to uh, live a healthy lifestyle and go to the gym at least four times a week and kind of stick by that. But at the same time, realize how much in family is important and how much spending time with them and leveraging that with them and doing things that you don't normally do because you're tired from your commute from work and all that and kind of an experience. And I think what COVID made me realize is, you know, the tomorrow is not always guaranteed, right? And you hear the, the horror of the news and you, you see these things and as well, not even COVID, I mean, just with the, the protests and everything and like kind of what what world we live in. And I think at, the, at that certain extent, you need to, and I think this is a flaw that New Yorkers have. We, we are like a work, work, work. We're the working bees, like, you know, and, and one thing that I've kind of gotten clear is like, you need to take a step back and realize what's really important. What's going to be there tomorrow? What's going to be there the day after? And it's your family, friends, and stay connected with them, right? And, and try to reach out and try to build those relationships. And I think I've taken maybe a, a bigger role in trying to do that now because i think during my cfa world i kind of lost connection with a lot of people and i feel like i needed to rebuild those relationships and, and what a better time to check in to, to see how people are doing when this is the toughest time right so and just trying to see what's what i can do better you know how can i be better and how can i keep pushing myself <laughs>